Blog Talk Radio. This is Backroom Politics.
This is Backroom Politics. It's Tuesday, which means it's time for the best political radio show you've never heard of. I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. This is Backroom Politics, live from our new home in Georgetown, Washington, D.C. It is Podcast Village here on Wisconsin Avenue. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade. He is the man that we know as the Honorable Alan Moore. Alan, how's it going? Hey. You like this? It's great. It's exciting. Here we go. You bet. Also joining us as he does every Tuesday, he is the retired one-star admiral from your United States Navy, Admiral and Admiral Ken Carradine. Hello, Admiral Ken. Hello, Justin. How are you? Oh, fantastic. You like this? I love nice it. New this dig. Great. This is awesome. Uh, joining me to my left, she is down from the great city of New York. She is the former attorney for – what are you pointing at my hand for? Because you mean, keep slapping the table. I'm not slapping the table yet. Good God. Who's moderating this? She is Sharmila Achari. Hello, Sharmila. Welcome. You like this? I love it. I'm so glad to be here with everyone. Yeah. And somewhere in the cage, we've got Dan Lipner. Dan's waving. He'll be on in a second. Hey, so in case you don't know, this is kind of a new edition of of Background Politics. Uh, Today's the first tryout of a new format that we're going to. We're basically going to be doing the same live two-hour show, but we're going to be cutting it into two shows that you'll be able to hear during the week. So if it seems like it's a little different, well, it's because it is, because this is a new beginning, a new home, new beginning for us. Uh, I do want to thank uh, Charlie and Oscar and Rob and everybody from Podcast Village from getting this set up. This is an absolute – if you have a podcast, you definitely need to check this place out, and that's my shameless plug. Let's get started. First of all, first segment, let's talk about Brett Kavanaugh. In case you haven't seen it, Brett Kavanaugh went through a confirmation hearing last week. It was – tumultuous at best, dramatic at worst. We've now seen him go through and Dr. Ford go through his here or their testimony. As a result now, because of Senator Jeff Flake, Republican from Arizona, Senator Flake has said that he would not vote for confirmation of Kavanaugh unless there was a full FBI investigation. Let me start off with you, Alan Moore. You, you've been through these confirmations before. You've seen a dozen of them. You remember the last dramatic one that we had with, uh, with uh, Justice Thomas. How does what we're seeing right now compare to what we saw with Justice Thomas several years ago? Well, it was uh, 26 years ago, so it's been a while. Yeah. And, and uh, for some of us who are very closely involved – uh, there, we were suffering some PTSD symptoms. I'm not feeling sorry for myself. I think that, that all across the country there were women who were suffering their own PTSD symptoms in sympathy with the, uh, the testimony of, uh, of Dr. Ford. Um, it, it started with Robert Bork, and it pops up time and again where the politics of personal destruction – creep into the mix and the end appears to justify the means. She was compelling. For me, he was also compelling. And that's where we are right now. Sharmila, I made a comment this week and took heed for it. I said that Dr. Ford was credible. You would have thought that every Republican that I knew, and I'm talking about Republican women, came out and just vilified me. She's lying. Look at her tone all over the place. Does it surprise you the amount of Republican women that have come out against Dr. Ford and find her not credible? 
Oh, sadly, it doesn't. I mean, Thursday, like Alan was saying, was a really hard day to be a woman. I think no matter what side of the political spectrum you fall on, uh, it's not surprising that Republican women are feeling the pressure to support Judge Kavanaugh. And by supporting Judge Kavanaugh, that sort of necessarily means that you're going to come out against Dr. Ford, because if you believe Dr. Ford, then that completely undermines any support you could have for Judge Kavanaugh and his eligibility to serve on the Supreme Court. So it's not surprising to me, given the stakes, given the stakes for this confirmation and given that so much grassroots support of the Trump administration is based on his judicial picks. This is something that's incredibly important to grassroots Republican voters. And if Republican women want to stay in office, they're going to need to fall in line. Admiral Ken, let's look at Judge Kavanaugh for a second. Um, He had, by some accounts, credibility problems going into last week. Uh, There were some that were saying that he was not exactly forthright in his answers. Uh, Some have even accused him of perjuring himself regarding the the hacked files from the old Senate Judiciary when he was White House counsel. Did did that hurt him coming into his testimony last week? I think that had uh, maybe a modicum of... uh of uh, impact, but I think what really is the challenge here is the fact that um, once you get away from um, the allegations of sexual misconduct, there's still a number of items that left to be resolved. Um, I, you know, I've I've heard uh, a number of folks on the on, on the Republican side of the fence as well as on the uh, the other side. This is not a legal proceeding. This is a job interview. Well, having been a hiring manager once or twice in my life, uh, it would be difficult for me to basically hire this person that have come out. And and, and I know that the FBI is probably not going to look at the uh, the issues regarding uh, drunken brawl behavior. Hold on, drunken brawl behavior. But I also think that uh, it would be very difficult if, our, if, if, if anybody else is going to be able to turn the blind eye and a deaf ear to that. But I want, I want to go back to a point, Alan Moore, that, that Admiral Kim brought up. The, the whole idea of that this is not a trial, it's a job interview. The, the comment I keep hearing is this is a job interview for probably the most powerful lifelong job we'll ever see in this country. Uh, is are they being too hard on Judge Kavanaugh and his non-forthright, his failure to recollect, and was he justified in his emotion with the fact that this is a the most important job interview you'll get? Yeah, I mean, we we could spend a lot of time arguing whether this was a job interview. In some ways, it was, but in some ways, he'd already passed some really important uh, elements of job interview prior to this. Um, was it a trial? Not in a legal sense, but ask him, and you'll you'll find out that this is an, a, a, a grotesque and horrible trial for him, his family, his parents, his wife, his daughters, his friends. Um, so it, it's uh, it's got elements of all of this. Um, half of the people in that room, or just under half, when he started. All but one or two had announced that they were going to oppose him before uh, before he testified in the first go around for 
several days on his view of the law. Um, there's much more at stake here. This isn't just is he qualified for this job and will we vote for him? There is a massive movement across the country of people who do not want President Trump oh. to fill the the Kennedy slot with uh, with a highly conservative person, and they're using anything they can to do harm to him. And they found something credible, compelling, emotional, and uh, and we're going to spend a few more days and sort it out. No one knows how this is going to come out. Dan Lipner, it was just focusing on Dr. Ford, was having the special victims prosecutor be the voice for the entire Republican Party a complete failure, or hindsight being what it is, did it actually save the Republicans a little bit? I mean, in this case, you're going to have to judge the Republicans against themselves and what could have happened if they did the questioning themselves. Watching what they did in response to Kavanaugh directly in in rebuttal to Dr. Ford, yeah, I think politically they did the exact right thing, uh, letting a prosecutor handle the examination of Dr. Ford. I think it would have been a disaster for, for them to go directly at her. Can going back to Judge Kavanaugh, looking back at it in hindsight, do you think he regrets now not having vetted that speech with anybody in the White House or even a close advisor or just have anybody look at it at all? I, I don't think so. I, Why? I mean, I, well, one, I, I fully expected him to come out swinging. I, I really did. And I think anybody— You think that was a good performance? Uh, no, but I, but I thought he was going to come out swinging. I think where, for me, where it fell down is when uh, he started undergoing questioning by, by Durbin. Um, I think that he, you know, he basically he 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 had to one appear to be strong. He had to appear to be defiant. He had to appear to have uh, be have to have be proud of a life worth uh, worth living. And I think right. he had to basically hone in on the fact that you know, in his words, and I don't believe this is exactly true, that you know that all the witnesses had refuted Dr. Ford's testimony. But that being said. Um, I think that um, given given some of the, the rhetoric that came out of the White House in the few days before he went on last week, um, I think he kind of was made to believe, look, you know what, you need to save yourself because based on some of the, th- the words that even the president said, you know, he the president's going to protect himself on this one, and he's leaving it for leaving it out for Ford to uh, to do do what he needs to do to save himself. Bad performance yeah. by Ken. Or, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Charla. Go ahead first. No, I I totally agree with Ken. I think that. You know, you saw that fiery speech, and it came across as a one-man, a one-man audience show. He really was. There were reports that President President Trump was very disappointed in his 60 Minutes interview, where he thought that Judge Kavanaugh came off as milk toast and weak. And so Judge Kavanaugh had this sort of second chance to really show that he was, he could be angry, he could be Trumpian, he could be defiant, and come out like Ken said, guns blazing. And I totally agree with Ken's point that where it started to fall apart for me was his response to the senator's questioning. And for me, especially his very disrespectful treatment of Senator Klobuchar when she asked a question that was very relevant to the matter at hand. Dan, you on board with that with Sharma? Um, I think he lost me a little bit earlier than that. The His opening statement was political, and that is beyond what any judge should be. And... Going down the conspiracy theory route, even if true, 
is simply improper for a judge, let alone a judge on the Supreme Court. If I'm a Democrat who is ever going to appear before this judge as a justice, I am immediately going to question whether or not he can have a nonpartisan opinion. And that is not a question we should be asking at this stage for a judge. You can question whether or not the, the court is political or not, but outright during his confirmation hearing, coming across so political is just not improper. Admiral Ken, then, uh, then uh, Alan. I would probably uh, go to Alan you know, for, for elaboration of this, but I very clearly remember Justice Thomas coming out um, after uh, the Anita Hill uh, comp. Not like that. Hang on. But you know, he, called this, he called this thing a high-tech lynching, and those were very powerful words coming from a black man in the United States of America. And I, you know, and I, I, you know, so when when I heard when I heard Justice Kavanaugh come out swinging the way that he did, that's exactly where my mind went. Wait, went twenty six years ago. Alan Moore, uh, so did mine, um, and I was there in, right. the, in the room. Right. Um, I, I wouldn't. I, I would love to have seen a couple of tweaks to that speech, but that's. I, I was impressed with his opener. Really, absolutely. Because not because he was had an audience of one. I don't agree with that. Or because somebody said you got to toughen it up. I don't agree with that. Those were factors. This man was absolutely furious at what was happening to him, his parents, his wife, his children, his life. He talked about that. I thought it was a powerful response, and it was in a way echoes of Clarence Thomas talking about a high-tech lynching and how he would have preferred an assassin's bullet to what was happening because he was never, ever going to be able to recover the good name. Okay, Having said but, that, but hold on. Let me just ask a question on that for, real, okay, real quickly. Real because quickly. there's a second all right, half. All right. Well, remember time. No. We, the question I have is, though, isn't there an expectation that we have a justice – in the highest court, to have a certain judicial presence that he did not display. So the time, in my judgment, watching it, and I watched her and I watched him, where he fell down, was in the questioning. So he unleashes his feelings, and then... In my judgment, remember, I spent 15 years in the Senate. I'm a creature of the Senate. I've testified many times before different Senate committees and so on. I have this kind of old school view of how you deal with this stuff. And and he didn't do that. And he didn't it didn't start with Durbin and it didn't start with Klobuchar. It was and it wasn't just to the women. It started with Leahy, who had his big charts of. Uh, pictures out of his yearbook, um, uh, his, his high school yearbook. <laughs> that was um, relevant. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and 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 he was outraged. What what where he lost his cool, if you will, um, was almost immediately as he as he got into the questioning. And I and I felt badly for that. I didn't. I personally didn't find it disqualifying. I found it fascinating. But, but for me, the you know the whole question is. What 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 do uh, what what do Collins and Murkowski think about it? I want to go to Dan, then I want to go to Sharma, but Dan Lipner, I want to ask you in the cage. The, the the issue of the yearbook 
and the entries in the yearbook. Do you think that that's a fair attack on him? I mean, because for crying out loud, I can tell you what I was not thinking about when I was 18 at Lake Brantley High School. I was not thinking I was going to be a Supreme Court justice. In fact, I was just trying to figure out where the next party was. The reality is, As was is, Judge Kavanaugh. Is, well, apparently so. But was it fair to bring in that yearbook evidence and just flagrantly put it up there for the world to see? I mean, it's a smack in the face to me. You agree with it? Well, it goes in question to a couple items. Whether or not, A, his actions as a minor or as a kid in high school, whether or not those should be taken into consideration, which is a legitimate question. However, there's also a different question at hand, and this one is pretty obvious to me and has changed my perspective on Judge Kavanaugh, is how he chooses to elaborate on this. These questions have been asked, and not only as a lawyer but as a judge, there's a duty not only to be honest to, be, to the questions, but a duty of candor. This is part of the reason why Bill Clinton was, was disbarred as a – as a member of multiple courts, he, he, he is not a licensed lawyer anymore because he failed his duty of candor. Judge Kavanaugh absolutely misrepresented his high school career and how he is. How? How, how, did he, how, did he, how did he miss his high school career? Let's just go with the simple definitions of language and the not understanding what the, the drinking age was. The, I, I'm fairly certain everyone around the table can say with certainty they know exactly where they were or what the legal drinking age was, assuming they love beer as Judge Kavanaugh does. You're high. The, You're they high. absolutely know when it was legal, whether or not it was legal, and whoa, when they were whoa, drinking whoa, legally whoa, whoa, and whoa. illegally. No, no, no. Wait, wait, wait. Before, here's the thing. Is, now, I do not agree with the fact that Judge Kavanaugh went and asked members of the Senate Judiciary Committee, do you like beer or have you ever no, been passed out drunk? That is inappropriate. But what I will ask, though, Sharma, I'm going to ask you. I mean – let me, well, I'm going to admit it, first of all. Uh, yes, I drank underage. I know this is shocking to anybody that knows me. I drank underage. Uh, I'm, le- I'm leaving the show. You, 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 <laughs> have I failed? <laughs> have I failed? Have I, have I failed my bar? Um, you failed the Alan Moore moral test. I did. Wow. Well, trust moral. me, it's not just his moral test it's that not I fail. That tough every, test either. And every day I fail that. Well, here's the thing is. You know, I don't remember what I did last Tuesday, let alone when I was at a party in 1988 in Altamont Springs, Florida. It, it, why should we, why should we hammer him on that? It, it is different if he had done that in his graduated professional career. But why do we hammer him now for being what, from all accounts of people I've talked to? that went to uh, Georgetown Prep or Gonzaga, they call that Friday night. Why do we judge him on Friday night? I'm not sure I understand your question. I mean, their line of questioning went directly to the accusations against him, right? The accusation against him was a sex- an alleged sexual assault that happened while he was in high school. It is then only natural for them to question them about his activities in high school you know, what were his, who were his social circle? What were his drinking habits? Could he have attended this party? Could he have ever encountered uh, Dr. Ford back when she was a teenager? And 
perhaps you can argue the relevancy of the yearbook to that line of inquiry, but it's certainly not irrelevant. And especially if it goes to impeach any of the testimony that he gave prior, right? Judge Kavanaugh talked about how he spent most of his time studying, working hard, working out, going to church. If his yearbook posts paint a different picture of him, then that, that speaks to his credibility and it speaks to his truthfulness under oath. If, if, yearbook, posts, right? if yearbook posts are evidence, I'll never get confirmed for squat. Right, but it's Justin, the point if is you are dishonest about what it means. Okay. Exactly. All right. Hold on. Admiral Ken's having a freak out here. Hold well, on. That, that, is, that, is it. that is it in a nutshell. So it would have been one thing if he had said, look, you know what? I was an average teenage guy. You know, I basically partied. I had a great time. I did underage drinking. I don't believe that I ever uh, uh, passed out from doing it. But to say that uh, to, to go out and com- to completely create a new version of facts that the evidence in his yearbook does not support, that is the issue. The issue is that he was not completely honest and forthright. As my friend Waquette, who ran a cigar shop in Plano, used to say, it's not the deed, it's the lie. Right, right. Alan Moore, real quickly, you want to close this out because we're going to take a break. We're going to come back to this in the next segment of the show. Yeah, understand. I, I think that, that, as we said two weeks ago and then last week again, um, he had an, a moment when her name uh, first appeared, Dr. Ford's, to say, oh, my God. I can't believe I would have done that. I have no recollection of her. I do not believe I did that. But if by any chance I did, I can't tell you how sorry I am. He closed off that route, at which point his truthfulness became the focus. It became the focus ever after and, and still is to this day. We don't know if this if they would have accepted that first line. Didn't matter. He took it off the table. Okay. We're going to take a break here. Uh, when we come back, we're going to continue the discussion on the Kavanaugh confirmation process. And we're going to talk a little bit about Dr. Ford and any other accusers and what the end result might be. This is Backroom Politics, live from Podcast Village. We'll be back in two minutes. Bow, 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 bow,
the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics. Live from Podcast Village, our new home. I am your host, moderator, Justin Russell. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, Sharma Achari, Admiral Ken Caradon, and the Honorable Alan Moore, Dan Lipner, Esquire, and in a non-disclosed location somewhere in New York, uh, Audrey Howerton, our producer. Hey, uh, we're talking about the Judge Kavanaugh confirmation process, which has now been drawn out for an extra week thanks to the Senate Judiciary Committee's decision to hold off on bringing it to a floor vote until the FBI investigates certain allegations brought before the committee. Um, let me start off with uh, Dan Lipner. Dan, when we, when we look at the FBI given the instruction or the FBI investigations, prior to the vote and the deal with Senator Coons, Democrat of Delaware, and Senator Flake, Republican of Arizona, everybody was saying that this is not the FBI's role. Is it the FBI's role? Yeah, it's the FBI's role. How? As far as doing background investigations for anyone up for a high appointment, it's what the FBI does. Uh, everything from information for cabinet appointees to people in the White House to judges up for a lifetime appointment. It is part of the FBI's mandate explicitly. And so them handling these questions that the Senate does have and the based on the agreement uh, that everyone was surprised by and I think hopefully can show some bipartisanship, which we haven't seen a lot of. Now, it's to be seen what the results of what the FBI finds and, more importantly, how it's handled. If Democrats and Republicans agree that what the FBI finds, if it absolutely clears Kavanaugh and says, while uh, Dr. Ford's thoughts and must we agree may have happened, it doesn't line up with the facts they discover, or alternatively, if the FBI actually finds material – that lends significant credibility to not just Dr. Ford's accusations, but the other accusations that are out there and questioning Judge Kavanaugh's veracity of any of the statements he's made. It absolutely matters and how it how the Senate chooses to respond. That's the real question. Alan Moore, you agree? Well, uh, absolutely. If if there is something out there that can corroborate Dr. Ford's testimony, um, then that's the end. Uh, if there is something that corroborates uh, uh, Ms. Ramirez's uh, accusations from Yale, uh, it's all over for him. The people they're going to that, that the FBI is in the field looking at are people, as I understand it, who could could bring something, some information to bear on those charges, and then the third the third charge, which. Seems less credible, but the FBI will be talking to Ms. Swetnick. Uh, NBC has spent some time with her um, and uh, seems unlikely. But you go into the field, you investigate, you learn what you can. There might be some fourth or fifth uh, witness that is identified in the course of the FBI investigation that someone else uh, has their own uh, diary or memory Um We'll we'll see. My hunch is, and we talked about this last week when I suggested I wasn't expecting the Flake Coons deal. I was guessing at uh, on air, if I recall correctly, that watch out for the possibility that Collins and Murkowski will say we want the FBI to go back in the field for a short period of time. 
Turned out it was Flake and Coons who did it. Those uh, uh, Senators Collins and Murkowski jumped aboard. So did uh, Joe Manchin from the Democrat from uh, from West Virginia and Heidi Heitkamp uh, from from North Dakota. And they said, yes, let's go. I don't expect them to find anything uh, uh, that will make the the real answer totally clear, but they might. You don't you don't send somebody out because you know what the answer is going to be. You send them out. They bring back whatever they bring back. And then the Senate will decide. And that's where, once again, we're right back to what will Collins and Murkowski do? Let's assume there's no new information. There's his behavior before the before the the committee troubling, not necessarily disqualifying to to their mind. It's up to them. Um, uh, Flake has said, if there's nothing new, I will support him. So this is still all about. Uh, Collins and Murkowski being comfortable, and we don't know yet. We need to see what, uh, what whatever we're allowed to see of what the FBI finds, although there are people on that committee who, when they see it, who knows if they'll keep it confidential. It's about yeah, more than that. Right, hold, hold on. Hold on. I'm going to start with then you, Dan. And I think to Dan's point, the bigger danger, if I were on Judge Kavanaugh's team, I would think that the bigger danger is that the FBI doesn't necessarily find evidence that corroborates um, Dr. Ford's or Ms. Ramirez's claims, but they uncover something that undermines something that Judge Kavanaugh has said, particularly particularly perhaps um, with respect to his drinking habits or, you know, sort of unequivocal statements he made about, you know, how much he drank or when he drank or who he drank with that the FBI then finds contradicting testimony to. That, I think, is going to be a bigger danger to Judge Kavanaugh than actually fully corroborating these allegations. Because, you know, as any prosecutor can tell you, it's going to be it's already hard enough to prove any sort of you know, sexual assault crimes beyond a reasonable doubt. It's infinitely harder to do that 35 years after the fact. So I think Alan made a good point earlier that these hearings have not so much become about the accusations right. anymore. They've really become about Judge Kavanaugh's truthfulness and his credibility, and that's what's on the line here, and that's what's more dangerous for Dan, him. Dan Lipner. Well, But keep in mind, it's also not Judge Kavanaugh. And while politics is absolutely being played as far as the timing of how things happened, uh, and this is directly to Alan, who uh, frequently asked the question, what is this about a Republican war against women? The fact that so many Republican men dismissed out of hand Dr. Ford's accusations before she ever testified. What about the Republican women? The Republican women? That, that, that the Republican I, I women? Don't, I, I, don't, I don't recall any of the Republican women challenging Dr. Ford's statements outright the way, say, Orrin Hatch said, I think this young lady no, is mistaken. Well, wait, 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 wait. First of all, I mean, there, first of all, there, there's no Republican women on the judiciary. But we've heard several high-ranking Republican women come out and question Dr. Ford's uh, recollection, Dr. Ford's accusations, and some have even come out right and called her a liar. I need to see the quotes. You know, we're talking about Republican women in the Senate. I've seen people dance around wanting to take a position for the Republican women in the Senate. I have not seen any of the female Republican senators take an outright stance challenging Dr. Ford. I'd have to see the quote. 
Well, I, I think what you've seen, what Justin asked before, isn't so much the Republican women such as Joni Ernst or Cindy Hyde-Smith outright saying, well, I think Dr. Ford is right, lying, right. but it's more a sort of statement that, you know, I stand with Judge Kavanaugh and, you know, these allegations are disturbing, but I believe him in his denials and I stand with him. And trusting the process, but not necessarily explicitly uh, challenging. Right. Alan Moore. I've been I was intrigued with with the president's response, because I think we were all wondering, so what's he going to say? Everybody's assuming that he will deny or trash or do something horribly inappropriate and embarrassing. And in fact, he said, as most Republicans, Dan picks out one or two who should have kept their mouths shut. But most Republicans, including those on the Judiciary Committee, said she was credible. She was compelling. Obviously, something horrible happened to her. I, I'm looking forward to hearing Kavanaugh. Or then after him, they said she made a very powerful, strong case, and so did he. And so did he. Um, and and so that's I think where they are, and that's where the president was to <laughs> to the surprise of many. Uh, of us, because he said maybe something, you know, maybe something will come out. And now after the FBI, he said, let him talk to whomever. We'll see. We'll see. Let's see what happens. It it, it was much more measured a presidential response than uh, than we were I, expecting, even as he was defending Kavanaugh and congratulating right, him on a that's tough fair, statement. That's fair. Admiral Ken. Um, true up until last night's rally in Tennessee. Uh, where he basically made the comment that uh, the Democrats are playing a game, that they're trashing a good man, and that, and then as late as today, he makes the comment that it's a dangerous time for young men in America because you can be accused of anything and you're guilty until you're proven innocent. Which, oh by the way, is I think, uh, and it's 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 part and parcel some of the the double speak that we've heard from the White House. Well, David, I mean, he's been he's been throwing that mantra around. Here's here's the surprising thing. And I've talked to a couple of people in the administration in the White House who have said that relatively they've been shocked that President Trump has been as uh, what's the right word to use? Measured. Muted. Measured. Measured is a good word. What would you use? It's a muted. No, complete Trump and muted in the really Relatively speaking, no. for him, for him, being measured is being mute. Yeah, yes, thank you, thank you very much for that. Uh, as measured as he is, they are surprised by that. Uh, which, quite frankly, so am I. I thought he would have come out and did. I mean, he normally, if this was regular Trump land, well, he's doing. He would have come out and called her a trollop. He's doing it at the rallies. He's just not doing it in front of the other uh, news. That's the trick. Yeah. Well, That's also, the trick. he he took a few pot shots before Dr. Ford's testimony. He called, you know, Ms. Ramirez a total con job. He questioned the substantiveness of Dr. Ford's allegations, saying, if if this really happened, why wouldn't her loving parents have called the police 35 years ago? He just didn't double down and repeat them on Twitter the way he normally does. So I, I, I don't think that he hasn't said anything, but to all of your points, he's been relatively measured compared to his usual attack mode. Well, the, the, and credit he, for not doubling down on the horror that he said is giving him too much credit. If that's muted, then Sharmila, uh, Sharmila's point is actually correct. But he has said things that are pretty offensive. It's Trump. 
Alan Moore. I agree with that. It's just we have a different standard that we've learned to apply. So we we expect certain things from from him. And then when he doesn't do them, we give him credit. I'm not saying he deserves credit, but it's worth it's noteworthy and I think that what, he was as measured as he was. And one of the dangers that we're falling into is normalizing bad behavior. That, that is very true. But, but here, your point, I think, is not being drawn out enough, Admiral Ken, is the fact that we're now starting to see Rose Garden Trump, and we're starting to see you know Rose Garden Trump, which is one, walking to Marine One Trump, which is another – and then Allie raging Trump. violent rally in Wheeling, West Virginia, Trump, which is a completely another one. And they're they're misogynist Trump is still very much there. If you talk to the ABC <laughs> reporter, uh, let's not, let's not and, limit the uh, the Trump list. And yeah. don't don't forget six a.m. watching Fox News and tweeting Trump. That that too. Yeah. You see, there's there's so many to pick from. It's like it's like having a Barbie doll for every day of the week. It's amazing. Um, but that that I, I, I on the behalf of Barbie everywhere I resent that. It's probably a Ken doll. <laughs> nice, nice. That works. Uh, Alan Moore, the, the, the issue of having Dr. Ford, first of all, I want to go back to the original question. I think everybody around the table agrees that Dr. Ford was credible. Am I correct? Yeah. Yes. 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 Okay. Uh, Dan Lipner, I can't see you in the cage, but I'm assuming you're agreeing with us. And not only is she credible, I believe her outright and the scientific I just asked you if you were credible, Dan. Let's not – anyway. The fact is I think we all agree that she was credible. The issue is, you know, what what surprised me was – and what I've heard some people say is how is it that Judge Kavanaugh could break down emotionally and she, recalling all this in probably the highest stress situation she's ever been in other than the the accusation situation – how is it that she kept it together and did not show or showed limited emotion? Sharma, I'll go to you first and then. Wow. I, I, I'm bringing up, I, I'm bringing up discussion points that people are talking about. Because Fair if enough, you that, look at that social media. to me of a, an incredibly sexist double standard because had she broken down crying, she would have been immediately dismissed as too emotional, too, in, too non-credible and just, you know, this whole thing would have been over. So I do think part of it... Was this, was oh, this so, a... She was screwed from the beginning, whether she was in it or not? I mean... I mean par- Partially, yes. Yeah. Whether I, she cried but, or not, she was going to get cut down. Right. And, and Dr. Ford said it herself in her opening statement, saying that, you know, the, last, the reason I brought this up back in June or July before Judge Kavanaugh was nominated, the reason I wanted to keep myself anonymous was because I did not want to throw myself in front of a train that was already going to where it was going. And yet that was the situation she found herself in. I think partially, if you want to, I'm no psychoanalyst in any shape, way, shape or form, but I think part of the reason she was probably able to keep it together was the fact that she's been holding on to this, thinking about this for since June. She already kind of went through this in therapy. You know, that's part of the, the public record back in 2012 with right. her therapist going right. really reliving this for the first time. And so perhaps part of it's already processed, right. but and I think she just, it was quite obvious that she came in prepared, right? Whether she went over it with her lawyers, whether she went over this with her family, her friends, whomever, she came in prepared, catch her off guard, 
They didn't, you know, trip her up in any way. She came and prepared. She knew what she knew, and she knew what she didn't remember. And so that was, and that was the end of it. Admiral Ken, uh, I'll just add on uh, that she's been dealing with this crap for 30 years. She's, she's found a way, she's found a way, I think, to um, maybe, if not completely, partially compartmentalize it. And everything that Sharmila just said, I think she was able to come into that hearing, do what she needed to do, and, uh, and walk away from it. Alan? I, I agree with, with, with what they have said. And, and let's not pretend that she was not emotional. She was very emotional. But her reputation was not under attack She's going to come out of here changed in terms of people know who she is. There will be people who hate her. There will be a lot more people who love her and embrace her. Um, in the case of Kavanaugh, I think it's just a, it, it's, it's a, it's a false equivalency. This man's life, livelihood, reputation, relationship with family and friends is, is never going to be the same. And it is under attack. And for him to uh, to be emotional um, was for me for him to show his his humanness and to show all that was at stake. I didn't approve, as I said, of how he handled himself um, in, in all of that. But but gosh, um, if he had been calm and cool um, and, and and in control, it would have seemed very weird and strange. Um, and uh, it was just. They were in very different places in terms of the need right. to hold it together. Right. Let me go to Dan Lipner. Dan Lipner. So Dr. Ford also did something else very important that it's hard to come up with a witness like Dr. Ford ever in the United States Senate, if any congressional hearing that I can think of. She was both testifying as her as her own witness to the events and as an expert in psychology. When she was explaining how memories are formed and that kind of trauma, I, I personally was taken aback and I actually had to check, and she was right. She, when, the way she explained it, she was educating not only the members of the Senate, but everyone watching. And based on what we know of how much America was watching this, victims of this kind of violence or this kind of attack, it lends veracity to their claims because of what they remember and the her the detail that she said about the she remembered the the uh, thinking that she might die would, would be accidentally killed and being laughed at as they stumbled down the hallway or being or the laughing as they stumbled down the hallway that was some incredible statements and so both of her as a witness and as an expert simultaneously was an amazing thing yeah but here's the here's the question is here's the question i have and charm i want to go to you um, and, 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 and please, this, this is where moderating gets difficult because I'm, I'm bringing up stuff that we see in social media and even in discussion here around D.C. The fact that she was looking at it almost as her own psychological case study, there are some in town that believe that she is – she was too busy psychoanalyzing herself that she may have misjudged or misrecalled or misrecollected. And the fact that she was giving out so much, as they say, psychobabble, 
took away from her credibility as a victim and, and almost neutralized it a little. Is that even remotely fair? I think that argument makes zero sense, to be frank. I think that you know, anyone who's experienced a trauma, um, whether or not it's of a sexual nature, or, but anyone who's experienced a trauma spends the rest of their oh. life the, the rest of their life processing it, right? And to Ken's point, she's been living with this for 30-plus years. She's had a lot of time to sit with it, process it, think about how it's really affected her in not only sort of the arc of her life, but just in the way she lives her life day to day, right? And that's something, you know, as someone who's been to therapy, that's something you also discuss in therapy is, you know, how these formative events affect you. And so I think it's completely natural that, she would have a much sort of more macro view as to this event and how it's shaped her. And then I think that anyone who's worked in a profession for over 30, 25, 30 years is naturally going to slip into that mode when they're talking to anyone about anything related to that. You know, if we were talking about international trade, I'm sure Ellen would come in with tons of facts and, you know, very, minutia and things that we might say like, oh, well, he's really, you know, going into the weeds, but it's because he's studied this and he's lived it for so many years. It's sort of hard not to do that. Alan Moore? Yeah, Sharma is right. Justin, if I were you, I'd just run from that line of questioning because I don't think it's going to help you to accuse her of psychobabble. What is interesting with her, there were a couple of things that came out. One of the things with, with a witness like this, she, she, I think had some preparation, don't know. She's obviously a grown-up. She's a teacher. She's articulate. She was emotional. She's reliving some, some painful stuff, but some things emerged that were interesting. Um, one, uh, I was shocked when, when she acknowledged that she had no idea that the committee, that Senator Grassley was prepared to send a team of people to her to interview her in, in a place of her choosing. And she said she didn't know that. Somebody at some point needs to find out her lawyers were doing. These are lawyers who worked pro bono and obviously had some additional expenses like a polygraph, as we learned. Um, there, there, really wa- there really is a huge number of people out there. There's a GoFundMe site where lots of money is coming in to pay for her security. God forbid that should happen to people, and I feel so sorry for that fact. But, but don't forget the underlying motivation here of stop this guy at at, at, at whatever it takes, and if we have to destroy him in the doing, oh my gosh, here's a new opportunity to attack him, and it's a legitimate one, it looks like. Kill him. Brown the horn real quick before we close out. Charmla, does Judge Kavanaugh get confirmed? If for whatever reason the Trump administration does not withdraw him, then yes. Admiral Ken. I concur with Charmla. Alan? Just like last week, I'm waiting. Dan Lipner. I'm leaning toward Alan, but I think the answer is no. I don't think he gets confirmed. Ah, there we go. All right. Charmla, Admiral Ken, Alan, Dan, thank you very much. Always good discussion. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics Live from Podcast Village. He's a cop. 
Don't say hello, we don't have 
room politics. And we're back. This is Backroom Politics, the best political talk show you've never heard of. Live from Podcast Village, our new home. Joining us as they do every every show, Dan Lipner Esquire. Daniel, hey. how do you like it? I like it. It's uh, definitely a different environment, though no cigars. Unfortunate. I know. Wow, it's a healthier it's a healthier mantra that we do. Uh, former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade, Alan Moore. Alan, you liking this so far? It's feeling good. It is. This is going to be awesome. Go ahead. Do it. I want to see if you pull this off. He's opening a can of soda. This is going to be awesome if he can pull this off. And he did. Look at that. Good job. Uh, Somewhere out in the Hendersphere, in the uh, back rooms of our engineering studio, is Admiral Ken Carradine. Admiral Ken. Hello, Justin. Hello. How do you like it back there? It's dark and scary. It it should be. (laughs) Joining Joining a special guest today for this segment he is the former financial security advisor to the president we know as Barack Obama. He's now a partner at Wilkie Farrell. He is our good friend, David Morlock. How you doing, buddy? Hey, I'm doing all right. You like How this? You? Do you like this? I, this is pretty fancy, I've got to admit. Yeah, get closer to the mic, too. All right. Oh, there, no, we, go. there we go. Oh, yeah. See, now that, see, that's... I'm going to see how this all works. You, you see, I mean, this is a real deal. You're I, used to. You're not used to this. I am not used to this level of production. Uh, I'm just used to, uh, you know, sell, speak a cell phone. And, uh, and you, Smoky Bar. Uh, and Smoky Bar, yeah, exactly. No, 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 exactly. I, I hear you. I hear you. Hey, um, I want to talk to you. First of all, thanks for joining us. Always love having you. We got to do this more often. Um, obviously, whenever we have you on, we got to talk trade. And I love hearing you and Alan fight it out. This is going to be like death match, cage match. This is going to be awesome. <laughs> Let's talk about the new uh, Umsuka. Is that, is that how we're pronouncing it? No. I think it's going to be USMCA for a while, and then we'll see. Where, yeah. Where okay. yeah okay. I, I think it's USMCA, but it's actually pronounced NAFTA. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> How, however, the um, sucker, I, I, I think you just coined the perfect political slogan for it uh, come November. What is that? Um, um, sucker. Um, yes. sucker. Uh, so let's talk about USMCA, uh, the U.S.-Mexican-Canada agreement. You, you made a joke about it's pronounced NAFTA. Is, in fact, the New Deal, which Trump is saying this is the greatest deal ever created by human beings. We've never had a trade deal like this. They will be praising me in the streets for the amount of money that we'll be paving gold. How different is USMCA from NAFTA? Sure. Well, I think uh, let's, let's start out by saying, look, this is, this is good news. I think there's no question about that. Uh, it, it means we, we have a deal it means there is certainty for American importers and exporters uh, about the North American market. Right. Uh, and so, so there's no question that's good news. It, it essentially ends this crisis that um, the president created by uh, threatening to, to tear up NAFTA uh, and have nothing as the alternative, which, which would uh, grind a, a, an incredible amount of uh, trade with our with our closest neighbors to a halt. So, so the fact we have a deal is very good. And the reality is also, there are some very good uh, improvements in here. Uh, the uh, uh, the new rules on components for 
for for automobiles being being created in the United States, the higher uh, salaries requirements for uh, for auto workers uh, in all three countries, um, the IP protections, the data transfer provisions. Uh, these these are great, uh, and that's a you know it's the same reason we propose those exact uh, measures in TPP. Right. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, the, these are all very good things. There's no question about that. Um, you know, uh, is, is it the greatest deal uh, in the world? Um, you know, like I said, I think I think we've seen some of these ideas proposed uh, very recently. So, so Ford Motor Company put out a statement, sure. and they said, "quote." Uh, this agreement will, quote, support an integrated, globally competitive automotive business in North America, unquote. What's surprising to me about that is, and correct me if I'm wrong, David, and Alan, correct me if I'm wrong, Ford already had that deal under NAFTA. What is, why are they applauding this so much differently than the original agreement that they had? Alan? Well, two reasons. One, uh, as, as, as David said, there's a deal. We've dodged a bullet. We've we we created a crisis based on uh, a, a a faulty description of what was wrong, and now we've achieved a solution, which, as David points out, has some useful, important improvements. Now the, he says you pronounce it NAFTA, which is a legitimate. Uh, way to look at it, I say let's uh, let's pronounce it NAFTPP, because because as as David also pointed out, there's some things in this agreement that were part of the the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP. That not only I'll remind everyone, not only the President Trump withdrew from, <laughs> but Hillary Clinton, after having called it the gold standard, also trashed. During the during the, the the campaign, so it wasn't just Trump who put distance. But the fact of the matter is, there's some good stuff in TPP that's now in this new agreement. But I I heard one expert say this is like 25 percent better than before. I think it's maybe 10 to 15 percent better than before. But what's really important that's better than before is certainty. The stock market likes it. Ford Motor says, oh, my God, we have avoided this possible disaster. This is all good. Dan Lipner. So the one question that I actually have for both of our experts here is, could this have been accomplished in some other manner without the Trumpian approach to international relations? What do you I mean, mean? It's a legitimate question. So there are plenty of folks that were affected by NAFTA the first time around. The, I was in, when I was in West Virginia in August, I happened to be in an area of the country that prior to NAFTA apparently were the, one of the largest glass manufacturers in the country, and almost overnight those jobs went to Mexico. And the gentleman that was explaining this to me was actually a glass blower, and he was a third generation, went into some real detail there, things that I had never known. And almost overnight, this entire area of the country that was known for making glass stemware in particular, those jobs vanished. And he wasn't angry about it. He said, you know, the Mexicans make good stuff. And, and kudos to them for being able to enter the market and compete. And they could compete for a lower price. And that's why those jobs moved. Right. But in this case, with the Trump just come in, break everything, throw every tariff, insult foreign leaders, 
is that really the only way to get anything done? And more importantly, did we achieve anything as far as educating folks on what the issues are on trade as far as the speed at which changes the curve? Let me paraphrase this. Let me paraphrase this, Dan. Look, Trump made a campaign promise he was going to tear up at NAFTA. To me, looking at the agreement and looking at NAFTA back and forth, basically all he did was just put a new name on this with a couple of exceptions. The labor price or the, the labor rate goes up. Uh, there's only a slight tweak in the percentage of automotive components that can be built outside of North America. Basically, this is just Trump tearing up what was a good deal that just needed a little bit of tweaking and throwing it away, creating his own deal, air quotes, and saying, look, now look what I've done. See, I made a campaign promise. This is a campaign promise. This is smoke and mirrors. Am I wrong on that, David? No, you, you, look, uh, are we, uh, I mean, you know, to speak for Alan here, I mean, I think we are extremely relieved that we have a deal. We're glad we have this deal. Is this a val- it's the same is, deal. Right. Is this a validation of Trump's trade policy? Absolutely not. It, 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 is, it is not, because it, the, the problem here is, if you're going to look, let, let's look at what he's doing across the board on okay. steel and aluminum, the 232 tariffs, on, on China, on uh, 301 tariffs, uh, it, uh, on, on TPP, on NAFTA. Everything he's torn down, he's managed to salvage one of them. You know, and this goes beyond just trade, right? We're looking at Iran. We're looking at the Paris Agreement. The problem with plain chicken North, is that every North now – North Korea, right? right. Uh, the problem with plain chicken is that every now and then you've got to be willing to drive off the cliff and, and let one go. And that does work in New York real estate. You lose a project, great. You move on to the next one. It does not work in maintaining international order and U.S. security. Alan? No, I, I, I basically agree. I, I don't say one, – one person said they just put a, new, they put a new cover page on NAFTA, and they didn't. There, there's, this is more than that. Were there other ways to get there? Absolutely. Um, would we have gotten exactly to this place by this period of time? We will never know. There's no way to know that. But, um, have we done significant damage to our relationship with Mexico and, more to the point, Canada? We don't know. Probably, but many of us didn't. That didn't do the damage. Ma- Shutting him at Unga was damaged. Many of us didn't expect to get here with what we now have. So let's, let's acknowledge that although it was ugly and messy and felt a lot like uh, a condo salesman who's trashing the competitor's building, those condos across the street are the worst things in the history of the world. And then he went over and, and remodeled them a little bit, and they suddenly became the best condos in the world. This is classic President Trump over-exaggeration of how bad something is and how good something is that, that he's achieved. But having said that, he said he was going to toss NAFTA and redo it, and it is, happened. Is this a victory? By, is this a victory? This is a huge victory. Did you see what Chuck Schumer said, for God's sake? <laughs> Chuck Schumer gave him credit for having a victory. That's if, true. If Chuck Schumer can, can, can call it a victory, it is a massive victory. Did you see what the stock market's reaction was? 
And that's not because they're so excited about the new opportunities. It's that they're so pleased that this self-generated crisis seems to have passed. And now we can turn to the other self-generated crisis, crises that are still floating around out there. Oh, wait, 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 wait. The, the Chuck right, Schumer on. point should be addressed just momentarily. The intellectual sincerity since Chuck Schumer did say he voted against NAFTA the first time around and wanted improvements. He got improvements and was giving a president who he's not a fan of credit for it. That is not something that is, we have seen from the other party along the way. So intellectual sincerity should be noted. All right. Admiral Ken, I mean, could we have done this without damaging the relationships that we have with Mexico City uh, and uh, Ottawa? I, you know, could another president have done done it without damaging those relationships? Probably. And, and, and has and, and that's happened in the past. But, I, you know, I think I think David hit on a very important point. <clears throat> The president is is going through his checklist of trying to fulfill the campaign promises that he's made. But by doing that, he's 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 tearing down things and then and saying, "Hey, look at what I built out of this mess that I that I made in the first place." This is this is this is classic Trump behavior, and I think we should all be relieved that the that there is one a deal that two this is not going to be the the first domino that's going to fall to create a, a worldwide economic crisis. It, Go ahead, Alan, real quick. I just want to add one little side piece to this. Apparently, Jared Kushner, the much maligned um, uh, son-in-law of the president, was very involved in all of this and developed some relationships, both with uh, with a couple of people close to the prime minister of Canada, as well as uh, senior members of the Mexican government, and came in uh, in these late hours, late days, uh, to hold things together. So um, let's give him a little bit of credit uh, for for this thing that we're not sure how great a deal it is, but we know it's it's better than what we, it's better than the old NAFTA, and it's really good to have this tense, ugly mess uh, pushed aside. David, here, here's the question though: Trump pushed the USMCA as it, his reasoning behind being so hard line was the fact that he wanted to do this. For the American worker. The funny thing about it is he's getting all the support from big business, Ford Motor Company, uh, from uh, all kinds of other manufacturers. The AFL-CIO trade policy specialist came out today and said, quote, the bottom line is that we simply do not have enough information at this time to whether the deal is in the economic interest of the United States. On labor, despite progress, more work remains to be done. To me, that doesn't sound like a glowing endorsement from the people that this is supposed to help, that being labor. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point, right? I mean, it, you know, look, if you, you go back and if we went back right now and collected all of Donald Trump's tweets on NAFTA and took a look at them and how, uh, how vitriolic they were, uh, about how bad NAFTA was, how how many billions of, of dollars, uh, how many jobs, how many millions of jobs we lost because of NAFTA, you know, the the, uh, the hyperbolic rhetoric about how bad this deal is. It, there is no matching up the, the fixes, which we've just discussed, with the problems that he described. Yeah, no, ahead, that's Dan. absolutely right. As far And the union speaking up on this in particular. So of note, these steel tariffs that are out there, U.S. steel workers are talking about striking right now, even though these tariffs have clearly helped the steel industry. 
that steel workers have not reaped any of those benefits yet. Similarly, the U.S. workers have not reaped a whole lot of benefit from the tax cuts. This is a Trumpian approach to things, saying I'm going to solve all the problems. See, look at this. And now the proof being in the pudding, supposedly being for the U.S. workers, that's not clear yet. Alan, Alan, oh, he, oh, he's got a good one too. No, no, no. no. I, I just, uh, you know, Dan is picking the wrong metric when it comes to the tax cut. Why? Uh, because the uh, the trillion no, dollar deficit—that's the right metric. Well, that's one that that would, <laughs> that that would be a relevant metric if anybody cared. And if interest rates started to 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 go through the roof, which many of us think at some point they they by necessity have to, no, but by virtue of the fact that 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 the corporate's part the corporate part of the tax cut, which not anybody cares or remembers, I did support, even though I didn't like the individual side, um, uh, has made a huge difference in the behavior of companies across America. In increasing investment, increasing dividends, in watching stock prices go up, as, as 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 the market goes up, uh, investors feel better. Public uh, uh, consumer confidence is up. Unemployment is down, um, and there are a lot of good things going on in the economy. Some of which, some of which, I I warrant, can be tied to the tax cuts on the corporate side. Have individuals felt it? Some have, some haven't. It wasn't what, what, what people were led to believe it might be, but, but I, I do happen to believe that at least for now, for this ongoing run-up, the corporate tax cuts made an important contribution to that. So, with, yeah, okay, with, uh, with, hold on, Admiral Khan, go with, ahead. Yeah, and with regard to um, USMCA, and uh, and the comments that uh, that that Schumer made, along with him saying, "Yeah, this is a good deal." He also caveated that by saying, "We have to see what the long-term effect is going to be on the middle class and the working class of the, of the country." And I think that's that's that falls in line with everything else that we've seen um, from President Trump with regard to um, uh, moves to to what he believed would be improve the uh, uh, the economy. David Mortlock, you know, what? I, I heard a great great comment today. They called – somebody called the USMCA New Coke. <laughs> I mean, as as funny as that is, and I thought about it – Is Bill Cosby endorsing it? No. no really too soon. Too soon. <laughs> it's really too soon. I don't think wow. so. Wow. <laughs> it is too soon. Uh, okay. Let me get back on track here. You, you, you see, I, I knew it was just a matter of time, Dan, before we had to put you. You know what? You're going back in the cave. We're putting you back in the cave at the break. That's it. Um, is there some truth in that analogy? It's basically a new formulated Coke that not everybody likes. Well, well I mean, look, I, I think I, the name is Wait, fun. did you, the name like, is funny. Did you like any, new Coke? Any new Coke joke is funny. <laughs> Uh, but the analogy doesn't quite work because the reality is, look, this, this deal is, is I agree with Alan's it 10 to 15% better than old NAFTA. You know, it's, it's new NAFTA tastes a little bit better. New Coke was supposed little, to be 10% better, better than better. old Coke. But the, but, but the difference, I mean, look, there's two, but there's two points, right? Which is what I almost saying earlier, which is, you know, we did not cr- need to create an international crisis and a potential, uh, massive economic damage, both the United States and 
Mexico and Canada in order to get this 10 to 15% improvement. And the second point is, you know, look, yes, this is an improvement, but, you know, President Trump isn't even proposing that the type of support to the American workers that Barack Obama did to accompany TPP. Let's not forget, TPP did include a lot of these provisions, right, on IP protections, on, on um, you know, improving uh, worker standards. President Obama realized that it, the, the deal also needed to include significant benefits for American workers. And you'll, rem- you'll remember there was not just TP, but TSP, which, uh, which would have provided significant funds to retraining for American workers, to education, to new job opportunities here in the United States, uh, in addition to the trade agreements. Um, and, and we're not even seeing you know, those types of offers uh, to the American worker from President Trump. Alan Moore. The thing you one has to worry about. So there's this excitement that that this happened. Um, we avoided uh, possible serious damage and permanent breach. The thing I worry about is that the president now thinks that he's he still thinks he's the smartest guy in the room. That his tactic of imposing tariffs, applying pressure, humiliating and embarrassing, leads to. A great result. You go from the worst trade deal ever negotiated by the United States of America to the biggest and best trade deal ever. These are his definitions, which were nonsense in his view of the past, nonsense in his description of what we have today. He, I, I fear he might even believe it. And I fear that if he does, to whatever level he believes it, He's validating in his own mind his tactics, his instincts, his notion of how to do things, and and so my own my big fear about 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 the new NAFTA is that that it, it may embolden the president to do other stupid Crazy things. Stuff. That may like back, start a that, trade that, war that, with China? That may backfire. China well, continue, you mean? To, I mean China's China well, was so, always China was always a bigger problem. China was the place where he needed to focus. Not on NAFTA. You can tweak NAFTA to Dan's point where there are other ways to get this done to try to figure out whether the TPP, Trans Pacific Partnership, might be salvageable and workable. The, he didn't need the side fights with Europe. What he needed was allies to take on China. He needed the Asians and the Europeans and the, and, and yeah, North that, Americans to to work together to figure out what to do with well, China. Well, that brings up a good point, though, and I want to ask David this question. You know, we, we, we know about the deal that we've struck with the Japanese. We know the deal we've struck with the South Koreans. Uh, did we necessarily – I mean, basically what we're doing is, again, in true Trump fashion, we are taking TPP and breaking it up and just doing TTP and TPP on individual country basis. We basically took TPP, put it on the table in front of South Korea and said, sign this, and it's a bilateral agreement. Do the same with China. I, I mean, the same with Japan. It, it, is Are we convoluting – these trade agreements so much that in the larger global economy, we're going to be the ones that are going to lose out. Look, 
I think the you know that level of nuance, that level of nuance on the approach, on the substance of the trade agreements that we are reaching with other countries or, or attempting to reach, it is completely appears to be completely lost on the president. Uh, and and I think you know there's a that, that's an excellent question to follow on Alan's point, which is which is I think this this validates the president's only strategy, which is brinksmanship, um, and. You know the the actual is, is the brings, is is show I mean is it brinksmanship or is it just showmanship? Brinksmanship no, I, gives the impression that actually that there's something truly being long term accomplished. It, it look it's it's both. It's absolutely both, right? It, it's brinksmanship and it's showmanship. And I think you know one thing we got to keep in mind is the president has had a certain let's say small number of consistent views over his lifetime. Uh, and one of those has been trade and this zero-sum approach to trade. If, if another country is selling us more than we're selling them, uh, that's a problem. No, no matter if our economy is more sophisticated, has higher paying jobs, uh, is service-oriented. You know, so, so the substance is, is being lost to a very narrow view of what makes the United States a, a quote, winner. Um, so that, that is part of it, and that's where the brinksmanship comes from. But I think, you know, oddly enough, what we saw today was a slight overlap with another one of the president's traits, which is wanting the president to look good. Uh, and I think, you know, the, the comparisons we're making to other deals on, on uh, you know, tearing it up and then, and then, you know, trying to come in with maybe come in with a, with a marginal improvement, you know, the, the, other, the other trait is wanting to look good, and, that, and that's what we've seen with North Korea, right? Let's, right? let's take the same deal that North Korea has offered us over and over again right. and call it a success. And I, I think that's, you know, that's what we saw today with, you know, look, with a silver lining that we got a slightly better deal, we avoided disaster. Okay. Alan, more yeah. than Dan, then Admiral Kevin, we got to close up. Yeah, the one other silver lining, I, I referenced earlier the fact that apparently Jared Kushner was involved here. Now, what, what that means is, is he can be helpful, but also – He's learning. He, <laughs> he's learning stuff. He's learning stuff. And he and Bob Lighthizer um, uh, worked quite closely on this. Sometimes it was good guy, bad guy. And what that means for me is that that Jared Kushner, who's getting this education on the job, was involved in this stuff up close. He knows a lot more about <laughs> trade agreements uh, than he ever did before. Um apparently played a useful role. He is one of the few people, he and his wife, who still apparently have both the confidence and the ear of the president. So for me, that there's possible positives in in all of that. Dan Lettner? Yeah, I think the, the net negative on this is the takeaway that not only the president took for believing this is the greatest thing since sliced bread, but also what the rest of the the American public is going to take away from this. There are some serious issues as far as American trade and how it affects U.S. workers. Economists have were misjudged how quickly, and this is the retraining U.S. workers. It doesn't turn as quickly as people thought it could. The and not being able to get that through the importance of what happens to an economy that is changing rapidly, even beyond trade. The U.S. workers that are being being displaced by technology, that is a real issue, but none of that is being discussed, right. and the president's takeaway is going to dampen that conversation. Admiral Ken? I'm a proud graduate of the Alan Moore School of uh, International Trade, and 
<laughs> as well as the Alan Moore School of Economics. And I think in eighteen that better or worse than the Trump School? Uh, much better. Uh, Trump I, University, and, but better. Yeah, it's a, it's Alan, a lot cheaper. It's a lot cheaper. Um, and nobody's suing Alan for his school. Exactly. Yet. And I think it's going to be about eighteen to twenty-four months to find whether we're going to find out whether this really is the great deal that everybody thinks it's going to be. David, uh, look. Um, We'll take small wins. We'll take uh, avoiding disaster. Uh, in, in, in this world, uh, that seems a pretty great way to end a day. No okay. U.S. jobs were, were, are going to be created from this. Well, Not wow. a one. Really? You want to bet on that? Yes. You sure? Absolutely. All right. We'll talk about that offline because we don't want to talk about betting online. <laughs> uh, this is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics. I'm your host, Wanderer Justin Russell. We will be back in three minutes. Stay with us.
Are we back? <laughs> I guess we're back. This is Backroom Politics. It is the best political talk show you've never heard of. Live from Broadcast Village here in Washington, D.C. Joining me for this segment, I am Justin Russell, your host and moderator. Joining me in this segment is Admiral Ken Carradine. Hello. <laughs> Thank you. How are you? Alan Moore, Dan Lipner's back in the cave. And joining us uh, for this segment is our very special guest and our very special friend, Obama's former financial security advisor and now a partner at Wilkie Farr. Did I get that right this time? You got that right. Okay, very good. As long as I get Wilkie's name, he's the one I got to kiss up to. That's right. That's That's right. right. He hasn't been around for a while, but... but th- this is David Mortlock talking about. Anyway, <laughs> hey, l- let's talk about uh, let's talk about a couple of things real quick, um, and just to kind of recap what's been going on in politics over the past week. I mean, Alan, you want to talk about Rod Rosenstein? I mean, this drama just won't go away. What's going to happen here? He will last uh, until the new year. You think? Um, I do. I do. Um, and I think that sometime in the new year, probably the first quarter, both Sessions and Rosenstein will be gone. Um, is let me ask you a question because one of the, the Jewish New Year, which is now come and gone. <laughs> <laughs> really, Dan? Really? You, you you couldn't let that one go, could you? <laughs> um, here's a question for everybody: Is I've heard a lot of people say that Lindsey Graham did what he did on judiciary and gave the Kabuki show he did because he wants to be the next attorney general. Is there any fact to that, Alan? Nope. Nope? Why? He can be the next attorney general if he wants to. He can probably be the next uh, secretary of defense if he really wants to. I, I didn't, I, I, I'm well aware of those suggestions and so on. What I saw in Lindsey Graham, who I know a little bit, is a man who was furious at this organized effort to destroy a person who Graham knows pretty well. A number of these guys know quite well in, 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 the, in the name of, of Brett Kavanaugh. Um, and he was furious about it, and he showed his fury. Not, not, but this is not for an audience of one? Not for an audience of one. Nope. This was for an audience of his colleagues in the United States Senate, for for the president, for Republicans back in South Carolina. Yeah. He had many audiences here, but not least of all, his colleagues sitting in that room. He was so angry at this. At Admiral Ken, you're shaking your head. I, I will agree with one fifth of what Alan just said. His audience were the potential, his potential voters in in South Carolina. Well, He's up for re-election. He does not want to. Doesn't lose have a race. Uh, he doesn't he, have a he, race. He, he is. You know what? I, he is. He spent a good part of the president's uh, time in office uh, working with with John McCain. Uh, who I think was his conscience. John McCain's gone now, and he's got to worry. He's got to worry about the next the next fight. David, do you think that this show that Lindsey Graham put on this week was for an audience of one or a tryout for Attorney General? Well, I think I'm I'm going to give him a, a little bit of credit in that I I think he truly believed what he was saying. Um, but uh, the rest uh, I don't think deserves any credit. Which is I think the reason he believed it is he finds it uh, truly outrageous. Right. That uh, a man of of um, uh, of privilege and accomplishment 
uh, could be taken down by something he did when he was 17, which I, I think to uh, uh, is is pretty horrific uh, to every every woman, every person um, who has been affected uh, by an assault like that for decades right. uh, and live with the consequences. Um, you know, and I think Lindsey Graham doesn't think Brett Kavanaugh should have to. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I think that it's a little unfair to uh, Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham has been an interesting character for quite a while. Uh, first time he came on my radar was during the Clinton impeachment, and he actually voted against a few articles of impeachment, and he was one of the managers of the impeachment trial uh, before the Senate. So Lindsey Graham is a more interesting character. That said, I'm shocked that there is politics taking place here in Washington. <laughs> of course, he he was not just playing toward the his constituents in South Carolina, but he's also playing toward Donald Trump. And I suspect he would very much like to be the next attorney general or the next secretary of defense. And I'd actually be glad to take him as the next AG because he's much better than Sessions. Yeah, no, uh, well, that's not fair. Uh, that's a little harsh. Uh, against two sessions. Uh, against, uh, uh, can I ask? Can I ask why? I, I like Jeff Sessions. Jeff, yeah, no, I, I, not I, you. Why? Why, Dan? Why, why, why do you think? Uh, why do you think? I'm, I'm taking over Justin's job here. Yeah, that's okay. Feel <laughs> free. Yeah, Dave. Dan. Dan, why would Lindsey Graham be better than Jeff Sessions? It, it is. It is hard for me to imagine Lindsey Graham, based on what I've seen of how he's handled his own politics, being as much of a knuckle dragger. On, oh, on the social on. issues that come Jeff Sessions has, has been as far as rolling back protections that the Department of Justice does. I just, I, I, it's hard for me to believe Lindsey Graham would do the same thing. We're not calling you a tree hugger. Why do you have to call him a knuckle dragger? Well, the fact that Jeff Sessions' knuckles drag on the ground. All right. We're going to stop it there. We're going to stop it there. We're going to stop it there. It would be really difficult for the folks over at SNL to find somebody to play uh, – Play Lindsey Graham. Okay. He wasn't making. A, he wasn't making a value. He wasn't making, he wasn't a, making a, value a value judgment. He was just making a physical observation. That's all. Okay. Did you, did um, you hear what I said? No. Yeah. And we're gonna let that go too. Come on. I mean, really? No. We're gonna let that go. <laughs> Dance was funny. Um, David Mortlock. The uh, one of the things that nobody's talking about. Here's the problem that we have with this show: is there is so much news to talk about, we cannot cover. All the stuff we need to talk about. Oh, I mean, are we going to a third hour? Is well, that what that uh, no, okay. no, I can't afford a third hour. Oh. You, you got to see, <laughs> barely afford the two. Anyway, the we can't talk about. It, but the one piece of news that got swept under the carpet was the fact that, amazingly, we avoided a government shutdown and a budget crisis leading up to. I mean, we literally went through September thirtieth. Into the weekend and October 1st, and we didn't have a bunch of crisis. Why is that news? Well, I, I, I mean, look. Well, I, you rephrase that. Yeah. Should that have been news? Uh, I, <laughs> there's, there's not enough hours in the day uh, to, uh, to read all of it. But I, I think, look, I mean, it, it's good news. It's good news in that. You know, there are still people in Washington that are actually getting down to the job of governing. And, you know, some of these people, uh, in my view, also supporting some pretty atrocious policies. Um, but, 
you know, a lot of them, the muscle memory kicks in. They realize they're actually here to do a job. They're actually here to engage in a negotiation, reach compromise. Did you really and just very, say, very, wait, very, very you, occasionally they they do it? Did you really just say that there are legislators that are legislating by muscle memory? <laughs> yes, that is that is what I said. Sad. That is what I said. I know, <laughs> but I think I think that's where we're at. I think that's where we're at, and we see, you know, we see it in the administration. What what. Folks may call the deep state, but you also see it on the hill. Which nah, is yeah, people, okay. people actually remember how to govern. People remember how to govern. And, you know, despite the president and his close circle, I, I think fortunately we saw, you know, the hill really, really um, kick, you know, kick into gear, do what they needed to do. The, the staff committees did what they needed to do to get this this uh, uh, this budget done. And it, it got passed. I mm-hmm. mean, I mean, also, look, the poll, there's that there's two parts of it. There's, right. there's that there is the, the actual governing. Right. But there's also the politics of it. Right. And, and I don't think, you know, if, if if Ted Cruz decided right now he wanted to start a budget fight, first of all, uh, Republicans don't have a leg to stand on over the deficit these days. So that argument doesn't work. Apparently, that argument only worked under President Obama. Uh, and number two, you know, it, it, there's no oxygen in the room for it. Uh, you know, it, the the politics just don't serve it. And so why bother? Admiral Ken? I think there's probably some political calculus that, that, that went along with the fact that the last time that the Republicans played chicken with the uh, with the budget and uh, caused the government shutdown, it did not go well for us. It did. It, it did not go well for us at all. And so right. them doing their job – I think is a novel approach and one they should probably do more often. Uh, Alan Moore, was it a, uh, is it the fact that we got through a budget session, no government shutdown and actually have money to utilize on October 2nd when everybody went back to work? Is it not news because the media is just kind of like, well, you guys did your job. We're not going to cover it. Or are we just so tone deaf? No, it's not news because of, of Judge Kavanaugh. Um, that, that has dominated the news cycle for the last couple of weeks, and there no, was no room for anything else. Barely was there room for the, the new trade agreement with Mexico and Canada, which was a pretty big deal. The market was paying attention to it and, and uh, the stock market and reacted to it. There just wasn't any space for any other issue. Having said that, this was a big deal. And in the in the how what what you have is is House Republicans who put their appropriate these are spending bills put their stuff together the Senate you can't do it with one party the Senate you have to have buy-in from the Republicans and Democrats there was buy-in from early on this was a high priority by the Republicans to show that that the party could govern. And what what you had happen before the 30th was spend. There's 13 different spending bills to cover all the government. Right. And I think eight or right. nine were completed, um, uh, accounting for about 85 percent of government spending. Right. And the rest was kicked down the road to the first week of December. Okay. The president belatedly was saying, you know, I might have to uh, to have a uh, might might let uh, have a have a government shutdown right. because there's not enough money for the wall. The president didn't do it. It was very newsworthy. It was a very big deal, and it did not. It it it, it it's just that it was lost uh, in the other. I I I need to say one thing because David but, threw out an accusation that, that? to Lindsey Graham, which I think 
I hope you'll rethink that because you basically accused him of throwing out any concern that any woman has ever had who has a bad memory, which I think is a, is a real injustice to what he said and why he said it. David, I, I'm, you wanna... I'm going to respond to that, which is uh, no, that, that's certainly not what I intended to say. Um, what I was saying is I think uh, there is a, a lack of concern uh, over, uh, well, <laughs> there is an abundance of concern about the consequences to Brett Kavanaugh and whether uh, he um, uh, gets elevated to the highest court in our land or has to survive the indignity of whiling his days away as a judge on the second highest court in our land um, versus uh, the impact on women who, who live these experiences. Uh, and and the seriousness with with which those accusations okay. need to be taken, uh, even even several decades later. I, I think his main concern is the institution of the Senate. Okay. Uh, yeah. No. Uh, that's that's a bridge too far. That said, I do have the the going back to the budget question that we were initially thank at. You, thank you, Dan. The, the, I, didn't, the, I didn't want to have to throw the hammer the, down. The, the, the question about. As far as a, uh, I don't know what the actual headcount in both in both chambers was for the budget passage, um, nor do I know how much money was in the wall or will ever be in the wall for in the budget, and I don't think the president's ever getting that money uh, for any wall ever, and the threat seems to just float out there consistently for this president, and to have a temper tantrum that, well, you know, I might do this, I really might do this, and the brinksmanship that never comes. Admiral Ken, you look like you're about to have a stroke. What's I'm, up? I'm confused. I thought, Why? I thought Mexico was paying for the wall. <laughs> I think that was that, that was in the SUCTA uh, trade agreement. That's part of the new trade deal. Yeah. Oh! Yeah. Um, well, that's where the suck part comes in, right? <laughs> Oh, good God. Yeah, that's why we're the best political talk show you've never heard of, folks. Um, Dan Lipner, what did we miss this week in the news with all the Kavanaugh stuff? Uh, what didn't we miss this week from all the Kavanaugh stuff? Um, the, well, I mean, what, what news got by us that we should really be talking about instead of all Kavanaugh all the time? I don't know. I was paying attention to all Kavanaugh all the time. Okay, I'll come back to you. Admiral Ken. So um, military um, intervention in the uh, the South China Sea is uh, is something we take uh, keep an eye on. Uh, uh, USS Decatur, um, a um, a destroyer, right. was approached within forty five yards, yards yeah. forty five yards by uh, a Chinese ship, and they were threatening um, our ability to safely navigate the area around the Spratly Islands. Um, the Chinese are saying that the Spratlys belong to them, but the U.S. Um, the, the international courts there are about five or ten different countries, including the U.S. and China, who've laid claim to that territory. So I right. think this is, uh, this bears watching. And I, kudos to the CO and the crew of the Decatur for showing an amazing amount of restraint. Right. I would love to see their their rules of engagement, but I never will because they're classified. You, you know, and again, because there is so much that we've just covered since just on Kavanaugh and everything that we've talked about, uh, David brought up the fact we forgot about – talking about the UN General Assembly. Number one, did was were they laughing at Trump or laughing with Trump? Admiral Ken. At 
<laughs> Go ahead, Alan. I think we covered this last week. They were definitely laughing at him. Okay, just making but, sure. But because of his worldview, he's absolutely, totally convinced they were laughing with him. <laughs> we did not cover this last Who week. Who would laugh at him? Seriously. We did cover it last week. That's, that's the funny thing about it is Dan Lipner, were they laughing at him or with him? Absolutely laughing at him. Okay, so what... I know your answer, but go ahead, well, David Mortlock. I'm, I'm going to make a, a slightly tangential point, which is, I mean, I think, look, <laughs> we, we also... When we, have we ever been slightly tangential? Exactly, never, never. I have one more thing to say about Lindsey Graham. No, 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 no I don't. That's done. I, don't. I will put you in the case. All right, fair enough. <laughs> All right. So, no, no look, I'm going to make a point about last week. Is, is, is look, that, that video was, was quite astonishing of the world la- laughing uh, wa- while Donald Trump spoke. Um, I've never seen that. I I have oh, never the, seen that happen in my 46 years of watching Ungus speeches uh, by presidents because it hasn't. Uh, it it <laughs> hasn't. But look, I, wait, I want to go to fact checker, Alan. Do you recall that ever happening before when a president has addressed a U.N. General Assembly? It's a little outside of my, my area of expertise, but I don't have a clue that anything like that so, would, have, so, would ever so, occur. Yeah, I think the answer is no. So during, during the Clinton, the, the Clinton uh, Lewinsky um, controversy, I happened to be uh, on active duty in the Navy and was in, was in the South China Sea. I'm getting uh, the point. Okay. And so that was the last time I saw a foreign national laugh out loud at uh, at the U.S. and especially in the uh, the the, uh, the personage of the of the presidency. But as far as is is uh, many as he addresses the U.N. General Assembly, UN, yeah, totally totally uh, unprecedented and sad. It, it, and sad. It, it is sad. It, it is, is sad. sad. And look, it, it's it's bad for the United States. But I think the, you know. You, you've got to look beneath the hood here and, and realize that it, it's not just a spectacle of a viral video. The substance of it is that U.S. influence is in the world in order to achieve our security and, and promote our values is at a new low. And I, and I want to provide one example of that. I mean, there are many examples from last week from the General Assembly of that. Um, but one example I found truly astonishing was, look, we're, we're all about to see the Iran sanctions that were eased as a result of the nuclear deal uh, go back into effect. Right. But one thing that happened last week that really was under the radar, I think, in, in the news was the fact that uh, the Europeans held a meeting at UNGA, and they announced, together with the Iranians, the establishment of a special payment vehicle to, uh, to, to pay for goods and services between Europe and Iran uh, and to avoid U.S. sanctions. Do you think, do you think the White House knows this? <laughs> that, to me, would have just set Trump on fire. I well, did mention that. Al Jazeera reported it last week. I mentioned that on the show last I, week. I, I, oh, I, guarantee, I guarantee you POTUS is not watching Al Jazeera English. I, I could be wrong. Yeah, I think the, the POTUS the, wonders who this guy Al is. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. What? Fake news. He's not, he's not saying nice things about it. But no, the, the point I was going to make, the point I was going to make is it is, it is, I mean, okay. look, it is, A, it, it's okay. not, I'm going to, uh, you know, this is for the European, okay. it's, it's not going to work, okay. right? Because uh, the way the sanctions are structured. But, you know, to have Europe stand up at the UN General Assembly and, and, uh, announce a plan to actively uh, uh, evade U.S. Fat law. Finger. Exactly, yeah. is is incredible. Is Alan, Alan incredible. real quick, last thirty yeah, seconds. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree with with uh, with that. Uh, I wanted to say one thing that I've been meaning to mention it for a couple of weeks, uh, and, and it was a presidential decision just just a few weeks ago um, regarding refugee resettlement numbers. And everybody knows here that I've been doing refugee related work for thirty five years, and. 
and have powerful feelings about it and, and, and feelings about who refugees are, why they come here, why it's important that the U.S. take refugees in. Sometimes they're people who helped us in, in, in foreign places. Sometimes it's to set a good example for other countries um, uh, where refugees end up having to go. Um, and we had gotten the number up to 85,000 at the end of, of the uh, Obama administration. Right. Trump came in, lowered it to 50, I think, and he dropped it to 30. This is horrific. This is an embarrassment. This is a deep under, misunderstanding of the importance of refugees, who they are. And I just wanted to call out this uh, well, uh, under the radar, but, right. but really cruel and contrary to U.S. interests decision made by the president. By the way, anytime, anytime the president wants to give an 86-minute long presser, hit record. That is must-see TV. And get in a couple of weeks, guess who's going to be joining us for a show? Mr. Kurd. Mr. <laughs> Mr. Kurd. Mr. Mr. Kurd is a friend of mine. Rahim Rashidi is a friend of mine. He is the bureau chief for Kurdistan 24 News here in Washington. He is the one that President called Mr. Kurd. Mr. Kurd wants to come on the show with us. I'd be, I'm feeling like he's a celebrity. We should do this. What do you think, Alan? You're kind of the voice of reason. I, I'm, I'm, I mean, don't you want to meet Mr. Kurd? I, I, I do. We <laughs> just need to be in a position to pull the plug if we need to. Why? It's Mr. Kurd. If we need to. What, what, pull the plug on what? On him, if we don't like what he says. We're censoring Kurdish media? Bring him in. I don't know anything about the guy. We can use a, we can use a trap door. I don't know. A switch. We, we need Mr. Kurd and Mr. Way, both on the show. <laughs> I feel like my, my chair's about to tip backwards into a fiery pit. No, oh, stop. <laughs> no, not you. By the way, before we go. Uh, I want to introduce the latest member. By the way, Audrey, are you on? You better say yes. She doesn't know what to do. Audrey, she's not on. Uh, joining us right now is uh, the latest edition. Want to introduce yourself, ma'am? Hi, my name is Manuela. Um, I am from Venezuela. I just moved to the United States, and um, Justin gave me the great opportunity to be in the show and on the show. So I'm very excited to be here. How, how lucky are you? Very lucky. And are you? Very lucky. <laughs> I'm so scared, but I'm so excited. What are you scared about? Uh, are, don't say you're scared. You're here in Washington D.C. Are you a student somewhere? Yes, yeah. I go to American University. And I'm what a do freshman. You, what do you study? What do you? Oh, you don't know yet about studying. Yeah. No, yeah, but, I, I do. Um, I'm a double major. Um, in international studies and media and communication. That, that's Excellent. how we, the media and communications is how we got Manny. So mm-hmm. that's good. Uh, are you enjoying it so far? I mean, you've only been working for us for how long? Two days? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but I'm, I'm kind of thrown into the fire pit. Yes, kind of a are, little bit. Are you enjoying it? I'm enjoying it. So how, do you, how do you like DC? I love DC. I now, love it. Tell everybody. Uh, we got enough time. I'm gonna I'm gonna blow through the ad. Uh, tell everybody how we met. Um. So Justin um came to give a talk on uh um my um government class um at AU, and um he was talking about how he thought that um, our, our electorate was a little bit lazy and they are not responsible on how they're governed. And I said, hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh-huh. It, it's, we, in, we have an inherently lazy, stupid, misinformed electorate that takes no personal responsibility in how they're governed. Is that it? Yes. That That's exactly right. The hosts do not necessarily reflect the opinions of everyone else. On <laughs> 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 present company excluded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So anyway, 
Um, so um, I basically make made a comment because since I'm from Venezuela and uh, the political situation over there is very harsh and it's very unstable. And I basically said that um, people here have no excuse to like stand up for what they believe in and work um, to fix what they think is wrong. If I did it um, marching on the streets at the age of 14, people can do it here without any problem. So let me ask you a question. Is the current situation under President Maduro? Yes. Uh, it's tenuous at best. It is what does the future hold for that country? Is is President Maduro is President Maduro sustainable as head of government in Venezuela, or is there a new is there a new horizon down the road? Sadly, um, the opposition in Venezuela is not very good. Um, people there are corrupt, and even the opposition works for the government and um, benefits from what they do. So. I think the only thing that we have left is to remain hopeful and um, keep fighting. Wow. That's amazing. Man, we're glad to have you as part of our show. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining Bienvenido. us. Bienvenido. Gracias. Gracias. Uh, we're going we're gonna to try our Telemundo Spanish on her. Are we really? Okay. That, that, that works. That's Peace Corps Spanish. Oh. Dude. oh, oh, oh. Now, now I program. Do. Now I, uh, <laughs> dude, really? You're staying in the cave. Just, just camp there. Uh, anyway, on behalf of uh, Admiral Ken, David Mortlock, thank you very much for coming. We always My love having you. We got to do My, this more often. Uh, Alan Moore, Dan Lipner. Uh, also, want to say special thanks to Sharma uh, Achari for coming down from New York. Special greetings, obviously, to Man- Manny. Thank you for joining us. You can follow us on Twitter, which, by the way, I have to announce today is the first day that we are being broadcast live. Are you ready for this? We're being broadcast live on Twitter. We have now officially started broadcasting Backroom Politics on Twitter. So uh, I don't even think Alex Jones can say that. I heard Twitter is a thing. Twitter is kind of a thing. Maybe the president will start listening to us now. You you know what? Maybe. If I start hashtag, man, well, you are to hashtag. Every time you post our show, you are to hashtag and put at the real Donald Trump and at White House. You got that? I got that. Okay, done. Uh, special thing, Al, uh, Admiral Ken for coming up from Florida for today's special show. Uh, want to special thanks to, I got time. Rob, thank you very much for all that you do. Our engineer back down in the cave and just do not hesitate. Smack the living crap out of Dan Lipner if you have to. Uh, Oscar, thank you very much for sticking around and, and uh, Charlie, thank you very much. Also, Deb Chandler, you know who you are. Thank you very much for making this happen. We will be back next week live from Podcast Village here in Georgetown, Washington, D.C. for the best political talk show you've never heard of. I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. I will see you next Tuesday. By the way, you can follow us on Twitter at Backroom Politic, where we broadcast live. You can also follow us on our Facebook page, Facebook, uh, Facebook.com slash Backroom Politics Radio. And you can follow us on Instagram. We're going to get that cleaned up, I promise, Deb. Instagram at Backroom Politics. And of course, you can also email, follow us on our website. All of this is on our website, backroompolitics.org. With that, have a great week, America. Stay involved. And thanks for joining us. We'll see you next Tuesday.